Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 94. Psalm 94. This psalm was written in a time of great persecution and suffering for the people of God, and there were such times in the Old Testament, even in God's nation of Israel. A great majority of people at times departed from the worship of the true God, and they began to serve the false gods of the pagan nations. There were times like when King Ahab and Queen Jezebel ruled the nation and Jezebel killed nearly all of the prophets of God. Elijah and Nehemiah as well prayed. Nehemiah prayed in chapter 9. Elijah said, they have killed thy prophets. And Jesus said in the gospel that spoke of Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And there were such times of great persecution in God's nation in the Old Testament. And it was during such a time that this psalm was written. And there, were two main, there are two main themes found in this psalm. First, there is a cry to God as the God of vengeance to, being, to bring judgment on the persecutors. And we see some of this in the opening verses of this psalm. We read in verses 1 and 2, O Lord... God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O God of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. And then he continues, How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush thy people, O Lord. They afflict and afflict thine inheritance and slay the widow and the stranger, and murder the orphans. And they have said, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. We see how heavy and severe the troubles of these times were. In verse 3, he cries out twice, How long, how long shall the wicked exalt themselves? In verse 5, he speaks of those who crush and afflict the people of God. In verse 6, he states that they take pleasure in evil and they commit the worst possible crimes against the helpless. They slay the widow and murder the orphan. And it is against these persecutors that he calls upon the Lord in verse 2 to rise up and to recompense them for their evil deeds. The second main theme of this psalm is one of encouragement and comfort to the persecuted. And the comfort comes from God's promises. We see down in verse 12. In verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man whom thou dost chasten, O Lord, and dost teach out of thy word, thy law, that thou mayst grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance and down in verse 18, he says, If I should say my foot has slipped, thy loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, 
thy consolations delight my soul. In the sufferings of God's people here, the wicked were bringing evil, and they intended it for evil. But God is able to turn evil into good and even into blessing. And that's what he says in verse 12. Blessed is the man whom thou dost chasten, O Lord, and dost teach out of thy law. If the troubles, the sufferings, and even the persecutions of God's people drive them to the word of God so they learn more from him in the law, then it is a blessing and God turns evil into good. In verse 19, he speaks of his anxious thoughts. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, he says, thy consolations delight my soul. So here is this saint in great trial. He is experiencing everything that has been spoken of in the previous verses. He is one who is being crushed and afflicted. It is a time of great adversity. He feels the pressure the turmoil of his thoughts in his soul as he passes through these things. The King James Version speaks of the multitude of my anxious thoughts within, of my thoughts within me, or the multitude of my anxieties within me, as if his anxious thoughts were a great multitude, and they cried out, each of them, for attention. They were unruly, and a violent multitude of these many anxious thoughts that were pressing in upon him. But the New American Standard gives us a good translation there in verse 19, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me. So it is not just that there were a multitude of these anxious thoughts within him, but they were increasing as each one of them seemed to multiply over time. So we may imagine here that this man is asleep at night. He is lying in his bed and he is suddenly awakened in the middle of the night by one anxious thought. And then that one anxious thought leads to another anxious thought and those give birth to other anxious thoughts and all of them begin to multiply. And so there are more and increasing numbers of these worrisome and fearful thoughts that enter his mind until there is this great multitude of these anxious thoughts multiplying within him. This is the experience of the psalmist here. It is the experience of God's people and every Christian knows, at least to some extent, what it feels like to have your anxious thoughts multiplying within you. So what is one to do when he finds himself in such a state? Being overwhelmed by these perplexing thoughts, the question is, where can he go? And what can he do now to find peace and calmness again in his soul? The answer is given in the second half of the verse in the consolations which are the promises of God. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, thy consolations delight my soul. In the midst of my trials, when I find myself overwhelmed, there is a divine communication of comfort and consolation that comes, that calms my soul and brings peace once again. And it always comes through the consolations and through the promises of God. The greater 
our anxieties may be, the more powerful must be the divine communication of consolation that comes to us from the word. They come through God's promises by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is where his consolations are found. And the Holy Spirit brings such consolation to us through them. The word delight here is a strong word. It speaks of one who leaps and dances for joy. This is what takes place when the comfort of God's promises come to us. There is not just a quieting of our anxious thoughts, but there is a calming and there is this joy that springs up and there is delight now in the soul. What we have in verse 19 are two seemingly contradictory emotions that take place in the soul. In the beginning of the verse, we have anxious thoughts multiplying within. At the end of the verse, we have this inward joy and delight. And only a Christian can understand these things and how they come to him by the power of the the word. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, thy consolations delight my soul. So here is a man who passes from one to the other from the anxious thoughts multiplying within him and then to the inward delight and joy in his soul. And what is it that brings him from one to the other? It is the consolations of God. It is the promises of God to him. We began a study this morning in the precious and magnificent promises of God from 2 Peter chapter 1. This morning we looked at promises of divine support in times of trial and promises of deliverance in times of trial. This evening we look at two other types of promises, promises of provision and promises of guidance. First we see promises of provision and we'll turn back tonight to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And we read in verses 9 and 10, he says, David says here in verse 9, he says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. In verse 9, David addresses the people of God. He calls them his saints, his holy ones. And he tells them that they are to fear the Lord. That is to be their great concern. Fear the Lord, O you his saints. To fear the Lord is to regard him with great reverence. To have the highest possible respect for him. To fear the fear of the Lord is to turn away from evil and to keep his commandments. To fear the Lord is that the last thing I would wish to do is to offend him in any way and to fear him is to trust him and love him and obey him. And David gives a reason why, a promise at the end of verse 9, for to those who fear him, he says, there is no want. 
There is a blessing attached to those who fear the Lord. They shall not be in want of anything, he says. There is no want, no lack in their lives. And the promise is very broad. Every physical, material thing that is needed, there will be no want to them. And every spiritual need that they have for their souls, there will be no want for them. Divine wisdom and power will give them everything that is good in this life. So we have in verse 9 an exhortation to fear the Lord and to walk in his ways. And there is this promise of earthly provision and the two are connected with one another. Sometimes men think that our needs can be met or must be met by evil methods, by fraud, by deceit. The saints see the wicked prospering in the world and perhaps sometimes they think that they must do the same kind of thing. He speaks of this down in verse 13 and 14. He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. And in the beginning of verse 16, the face of the Lord is against evildoers. So David's promise in verse 9 is that the Lord will take care of his own. Those who fear him, there will be no want. The evil men of the world, they think they will provide their needs by walking in their evil ways. And they think that if a man walks uprightly and in honesty and integrity, then it will not go well for him. Such thinking is contrary to the scriptures. David says here, let the wicked trust in their own evil schemes, but let the saints of God trust in the Lord, for we have his promise. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him, there is no want. So our hymn put it in this way that we just read. If we fear him, then we have no fear of anything else. If we serve him and make him our delight, then he will make our needs his cares. The promise is not for great wealth or riches. The promise is not for the luxuries, excesses that we sometimes think that we need. The promise is that everything that is good and beneficial to us, everything that is good, it will not be denied. And God will use his power and his generosity to give us everything that is good. This is the way it has always been for us in life. If we look back and we can see the hand of God always providing and we may look forward and we may trust that he is still the same and he will deal with us in the same way. He fulfills the promise often by ordinary means of providence. The everyday provisions of life that come to us in ordinary ways, bread and food and clothing and shelter. There are some times when he provides in the most unexpected ways, in Ways that we would never anticipate the most unusual and sometimes the striking providences of God. They bring to us our needs in ways that we could never have imagined. And sometimes he even uses supernatural means. He sent manna down from heaven upon the nation of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. 
when there was a great drought in the time of Elijah. There was no rain, but Elijah was by a brook, and the ravens came morning and evening and brought him meat and bread. There was the widow in Zarephath, she had a one flower, one bowl of flour and a little oil in a jar, and all of her needs were met. So in whatever way God chooses, he fulfills his promise. His promise will never fail. He has a multitude, many great ways to fulfill his promise. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. And then David gives an illustration in verse 10. He says, the lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. The young lions, they have strength. The young lions, they are skillful in hunting down their food. They roar in the jungle and the other beasts tremble, and they seem to devour whatever they wish but there are times when even young lions, they search for food and they can find none and they lack and they suffer hunger. But it will not be so, he says, for the people of God. We do not have the strength of lions. All we have is the fear of the Lord. And if we have the fear of the Lord, then that is all we need. Those who fear the Lord, they will not want anything. Lions, young lions will lack and suffer but those who seek the Lord will not be in want of any good thing. We see that the saints are described in verse 9 as those who fear the Lord. And then they are described in verse 10 as those who seek the Lord. The fear of the Lord does not drive us away from the Lord. The fear of the Lord drives us to seek the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord teaches us how dependent and how needy we are upon him. Those who fear the Lord, they seek the Lord. And so we have these promises of God's provision here. We could turn to another passage in Psalm 37. In th Psalm 37 and verse 25. He says in verse 25, I have been young and now I am old and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. David says I have been young and now I am much older. And if you read the life of David in the Bible, what you will find is that when he was young, he was a warrior. And he went about all the land of Israel in different places, even over into the land of the Philistines. And he saw all the people, so many people he came to know in all of his exploits as a great warrior. But then he became king over Israel and he ruled the entire nation. David knew the people of Israel. And he had all of this many years of experience throughout all of his life. He was young and then he was old. And he saw all kinds of things that took place. There was war. There was famine. There were calamities that took place. David saw all of these things. But he said there was one thing that he never saw. 
There was one thing that he never saw wherever he went and whatever he did through all of those years, and it was that he never saw the righteous forsaken by God in terms of their needs or their descendants begging bread. We can turn to Psalm 84. Psalm 84 and verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord is a sun and a shield. A sun, the sun gives light. And the sun gives warmth, and the sun brings joy to the world. And so the Lord sends his light, his truth, and he gives joy to his people. A shield, a shield gives protection from danger, and the Lord gives his divine protection to his people. This is who he is. He is both a sun and a shield to us. And then it says that the Lord gives grace and glory. Grace is anything that we need, any divine aid, support, or strength in our trials. Grace is what we receive in this life. Glory is what we receive in the life to come. And the Lord gives both. He gives us glory now and grace now and glory to come. He gives us grace to protect us and guard us and grace to lead us into glory. So he gives us both grace now and glory in the world to come. He says there, no, no good thing does he withhold. No real good thing does he ever withhold from us. Nothing in this life now or in the life to come. Every good thing is given to us by the bounty and the generosity of God. His goodness is never exhaust, exhausted. The end of the verse, to those who walk uprightly. That should be our great concern in life, to walk uprightly before the Lord. To do his will, to be pleasing to him in all things. That's our concern here. There are two concerns in this verse. First is our concern. Second is God's concern. Our concern is to walk uprightly. God's concern then is to be a sun and a shield to us to give us grace and bring us to glory, and no good thing does he withhold from us along the way. So we do our concern, and he will take care of his concern, is the promise of the verse. We can turn into the New Testament as well in this regard. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, he says, But I have received everything in full and have in abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. 
And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The Philippians had made an offering to meet the needs of Paul. And Paul now promises them in verse 19 that all of their needs will be met. Because the God of heaven will recompense them abundantly. As if on a scale that is fitting to the riches which belong to him in glory. God will be no debtor to men. And he will not fail to meet the needs of those who have sacrificed for his cause in this world. Whatever those needs may be material or spiritual. We see there are two things there in the verse. There are our needs, and there are his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Those are the two things that the verse speaks of, our needs, our needs and his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. How vast must be his riches in glory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Unsearchable, unfathomable treasures in Christ. How abundant and wonderful and glorious those things must be, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Things which no man has ever seen or can see, but yet in some way he sends them down to his people to supply our needs. So we have these two things. We have our needs. We have our needs on one side of the scale, and we have his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What are our, what are our needs? But a little handful, perhaps a little handful, compared to his unsearchable, infinite, and abundant riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Surely he is able to supply all of our little needs here in time and space and bring us into his eternal kingdom. We have another promise of our provisions met in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew, chapter 6. Jesus speaks here in the Sermon on the Mount. We read in Verses 19 and 20. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. Amazing advice from our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we not realize that everything that we own and everything that we have, moths are eating it and rust is destroying it. It is collapsing. In a few short years, everything that we see will be gone. Everything, everything in this world that we could possibly own, it is decaying. It is in a state of collapsing. It is declining. But Jesus came from heaven and he tells us there there are treasures that no, mouth, no moth can ever eat and no rust can ever destroy and no thief will ever break in and steal those treasures. And so he gives us good advice here. He says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. 
Down in verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and riches and the things of this world at the same time. And then we read verses 25. We'll read down through the end of the chapter. He says, for this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for, what your, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubic to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The great lesson of this chapter, of this section of scripture, is the priority of our spiritual needs over all the physical needs of this present life. And that's what Jesus is speaking of in verse 24. We must serve God and not mammon and riches. But then he knows the hearts of men and he knows how quickly when men hear such a thing as verse 24 that they will say, well, they will become anxious and they will say that they have these physical needs for food and clothing. Do you not know that we have families that we must care for? How can we provide their physical needs? We must pay attention to these things over the needs of our souls. And so in verses 25 down through verse 24, Jesus deals ex with excessive anxiety over earthly cares and he warns us no less than five times not to be anxious. In verse 25, for this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. Verse 27, and which of you by being anxious can add a single cubic to his lifespan? Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Verse 31, do not be anxious. Verse 34, do not be anxious for tomorrow. So his great concern is to warn us and to keep us from excessive care and anxiety, inordinate attention to the things of the world. We often think that our anxiety over worldly things is innocent, harmless. The very opposite is true. It is really a very dangerous thing oftentimes because it reveals a distrust in God, and it could reveal an excessive love of the things of the world. 
And it is dangerous to our souls. That's why Jesus said in the parable of the sower and the seed that there is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So these excessive anxious cares over these things, they are especially dangerous because they work secretly. They work secretly and they quietly subtly corrode our spiritual life and they can gradually bring us to turn from our commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus warns us here in this passage to remove such cares from our hearts and to trust. And he gives us the promises here of God's providential care that everything that we need in this life will be met for us. The food for our bodies the clothing that we need, the shelter, everything that we need in this life will be given to us. The God of heaven is the God of creation, is what he's saying in this passage. And if he, cre if he has given life to us, then he will care for us in all of life. The God of creation, he cares for his creation. He cares for all of his creation. The birds of the air, he cares for them. The lilies and the grass of the field, he cares for them. They are never anxious. They don't toil or spin. He cares for them. And if he, the God of creation, cares for the grass and the lilies and the birds, then will he not much more care for us who have immortal souls and who are of so much greater value to him who is our heavenly father? Jesus is not condemning a proper attention to work and skill to develop ourselves and use all of our gifts and strength for him in serving him in this world. Other passages of the Bible speak of that. He does not speak here against any legitimate plans for the future in life, but he does warn us against these excessive cares that we are not to fear. Our Heavenly Father will supply all of these needs. In verse 20, 32, all these things the Gentiles are eagerly seeking. They do not know God. They do not know there is anything beyond this present life and the things of this world. That's why they spend all their strength and energy to pursue and have more and more of these things. But your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. In verse 33, he gives us the priority in life. He says, seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Not second, not third, first. Above everything else, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then the promise is given and all these things will be added to you. So once again, we have our concern, which is to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and God will take care of all of his concerns, and all of these things will be added to us. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not be anxious, even for tomorrow. So the summary of this passage is that if we are the true servants of God, from verse 24, and God is our true master, then let us serve him. And if we serve him, then he will care for us 
in all of our needs. We read in Romans chapter 8 that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If he sent our Lord Jesus Christ into the world for us, then will he not give us everything else that we need? So we have these promises of provision. Second tonight, more briefly, we come to the promises of guidance, promises of divine guidance. We turn back to the passage we read earlier in Psalm 25. Psalm 25, I'll read verses 8 through 12. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. So in this psalm, we have a prayer and with promises of divine guidance to the Christian. David, in this psalm, he was in a time of distress. And he was remembering his sins. And he was asking God to have mercy upon him and forgive him of his sins. We see this in verse 7. He says, do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. He says, according to thy loving kindness, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. In verse 11, he says again, pardon my iniquity for it is great. And down in verse 18, he says, look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. So David here was remembering his sins. And what he was doing as well at the same time was he is encouraging himself in thoughts of the goodness and the loving kindness of God to him. At the end of verse 7, he says, According to thy loving kindness, remember thou me for thy goodness sake. And in the beginning of verse 8, he says, Good and upright is the Lord. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. So we notice here this method that David is using in this portion of the psalm. What he is doing is he is remembering and he is meditating upon the character of God. He is recalling the goodness of God to him. And he is meditating in his mind about the loving kindness that belongs to the Lord. And this is the way he was, this was the method that he was using to revive his heart in prayer because prayer is often so difficult for us to maintain. One of the hardest, perhaps the hardest duty of the Christian life. And we so often grow weary and tired and lose hope and confidence in prayer. But what David is showing us here is one of the methods to stir ourselves up to prayer, to remember the character of God that is most needed for the answer to our prayers. His goodness, his mercy, his power, his faithfulness, his righteousness. It is like pouring fuel upon the fire of prayer. And it kindles our desire for prayer as well. 
David assures himself that based upon the character of God, he shall receive the promise of divine guidance in verse 8. He says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, therefore, because he is good, because he is upright, he instructs sinners in the way. And he is a God who can teach us the way that is good and right. It is a promise of divine guidance in this life. He instructs sinners in the way. Now, when he says he instructs sinners in the way, we may say that he also instructs the unconverted sinners in the way of salvation, which they need. That's what the unsaved need. They need the instruction of the Lord into the way of salvation. But in this context, it especially speaks of God's instruction to us who are believers but are still sinners. David is remembering his sin and he is conscious grieving over his sin throughout this psalm. But despite his sins and despite the fact that he is still a sinner, the Lord will not forsake him. He will still instruct sinners who believe in him in the way in which they should go. And then he goes on with a different promise now in verse 10. Verse 9, he leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. The humble are the meek, the teachable. The humble are those who are submissive. The humble are those who are willing to learn from the Lord. He teaches them. Their hearts are not stubborn and hard. Their hearts are pliable. Their hearts are open to hear and to learn from him. And he leads them and he teaches them his ways. We see the same promise in verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him. He will instruct him in the way that he should go. We all need guidance in this life. There is hardly a time when we do not need guidance in some area of life. Many decisions must be made. Choices are before us. We come to those places in life where decisions must be made. Sometimes we are confused. Sometimes we are perplexed and we do not know which way to go. Sometimes there are dangers ahead that we cannot see. Sometimes there are consequences that come from our choices and we cannot yet see them clearly, but the Lord can see them for us because he knows the end from the beginning. And so we need his wisdom and his direction and his counsel to us. And so what we must do is that we must watch over our hearts and we must have the character that David describes in this psalm. We must be those who repent of our sins. We must be those who are humble and meek in our spirits and we must be those who fear the Lord. And if those moral qualities are ours, then we can be sure of the promise that he will guide us. He will instruct sinners in the way he will instruct him in the way that he should choose. The most amazing thing that the God of heaven is able and willing to be our teacher and to instruct us and guide us in the way.
that we should go? What are some of the methods that he uses to instruct us? First is his word. In the word, he, lies, he lays down principles to guide us in our conduct. And so we must be good students of the word. Second, we are led by his spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and enlightens us into certain truths of the word. And the Holy Spirit inclines our hearts and makes us willing. The third is the counsel and advice of others who are more experienced and who have traveled that way before. In an abundance of counselors, there is wisdom. And the fourth way is God's providence, in which there may be various indications that the way is opened up for us and it is possible for us to walk in the way. But providence never violates the word of God. God does not lead us in providences which violate the truth of his word. Sometimes there are decisions that must be made and the way of providence becomes hard. Even though we are doing what is good and right, providence sometimes seems to be contrary to us and it is a testing of our faith and approving of our commitment to walk according to his word. So we have these qualities that David expresses being humble, teachable, repenting, saints, fearing the Lord, and then he will grant to us this divine wisdom. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it shall be given to you. One more passage in this regard is found in Psalm 48. In Psalm 48, we'll read verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. And then the last verse in the psalm. For such is our God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. So at the end of verse, in verse 14, the great truth that is spoken here is that God is our God. The great promise of God's eternal covenant is I will be their God and they will be my people. And here he is our God. And he is the God who belongs to us and we belong to him. And, and if we belong to him through Jesus Christ by faith and he is our God, he says forever and ever. He is not just our God in time, but he is our God into eternity, and he will never leave us or abandon us. He will be our God into eternity, our God forever and ever, and he will guide us until death. The word actually means, death actually means forever. He will guide us forever. He will guide us in this life until the end comes. He will guide us to the time of death, and then he will still guide us into eternity forever and ever. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 17. The lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God shall wipe away every tear.
from their eyes. So we have the promise of God's guidance to us in all of life. We stumble. We err. We sometimes wander in ways that we ought not. But he will never leave us. He will bring us back. And he will restore our souls. And he will be our guide forever and ever. So we have these two great promises given to us tonight in the word of God. Promises for all of our provisions to be met. And every good thing to be given to us. And then the promises of his guidance in life and into eternity. Let us pray together. Our Father and gracious God in heaven, thank you for your blessed word that there are so many great and wonderful, precious and magnificent promises given to us. And we pray that you would help us, that we would know them and that we would rest our souls upon them and they would bring great delight and consolation to us in times of trouble and need when we have many anxious thoughts multiplying within us. Lord Jesus, may we cast our souls upon you and rest in all of your gracious promises, knowing that every word you will fulfill. We pray that you would bless your word to us tonight, that we would all come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior, and we would all rest in him for every need. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Be with us now throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.